0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. the word of the Lord. So I've been waiting and wanting to preach on Romans for the last five years. Paul's letter to the Romans is explosive. You know, when this letter grabs a hold of a heart, big things happen. Christ is exalted. Sin is shown for the whiny pimp it is. Unity among Christians from all cultural and ethnic backgrounds grows. The Christian church goes forth in power and purity and your lives can rise to taste the heights of divine love. So I have big prayers for you. May Romans grab hold of your heart so your heart may grab hold of your God and never let go. Imagine that you lived long ago in a war-torn country and you are an orphan. You never knew your birth parents. But then as a successful adult, You came to find out that all the care you received, the orphanage that took you in, the kind woman that read you stories every night, the food supplied to you even in times of famine, the community of love that surrounded you, the books and tuition paid for your college, all of it came by the advocacy and diligence of one of your parents' old friends, someone who lived halfway across the world but who took it upon himself to make sure that you lacked for nothing." When you found out about the existence of this person, it would change you. Especially, especially when you discovered a note from him that says, I was never able to meet you, but I prayed for you, thought of you, and worked for you every day. That's often how people feel when their heart grabs hold of God for the first time. Everything shifts. They see everything differently. They see their history differently. They see him in their history. They see him in their key moments of life, in their hard days. They see themselves as orphans without God as their father. And they see the good that he has always been bringing to their lives. Romans unveils for us how God has been at work for our good long before we ever existed. You see... Romans helps us see God's love for us, apart from the events of our lives, chiefly in how he has been and acted in history, mainly in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Your story finds the deepest meaning and joy in the story of Jesus Christ, and Romans shows us how. Now. For our study, we're jumping into one of the juiciest parts of the book, Romans 5 through 8. Other parts of Romans will have to be for another day. Now, the main burden of Romans 1 through 4, so the first section, was to show that the gospel concerns God's son, Promise in the scriptures come in power to save everyone who believes in him, Jew or Gentile. Oh yes, everyone must be saved, including the Jews, God's people, because of sin. Now, the amazing thing about the salvation that Jesus brings is that it comes to a person, not by doing something, but by believing something, a message. And what is the message? Jesus Christ, by his blood, makes you a child of God that is the message and because there's nothing you can do to earn to deserve that salvation boasting is excluded now that quick summary of the first section of romans attempted just to bring out the glorious news that god welcomes us into his family as we hold fast to his son jesus christ regardless of who we are so sense of worth based on skin color Political affiliation, money in the bank, ethnic background, degrees on the wall breaks up and breaks down the human race. Rivalries on the same grounds are also useless and actually show that we don't understand what it means to belong to God's family by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel makes the ground level for everyone, man or woman. Black or white, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, it doesn't matter. And that actually brings us to one of the main things that we're going to see in Romans 5 as we open up today. We're going to see something astonishingly refreshing but also deeply offensive. And that is that God only saves bad people. God only saves bad people another way of saying the same thing is this god can't save good people he can't now how how is that statement both refreshing and offensive at the same time well it has everything to do with how you see yourself as we will see by the end but what scripture teaches everywhere and paul has already made abundantly clear in this letter is that everyone is a sinner everyone Now, unfortunately for us, the way that in our culture the word sinner is used is only as a joke. Like, what? You ate the children's Halloween candy? Sinner. It's never like the man committed fraud because, as we all know, he is a sinner. It's never like that. But you see, part of what Paul has done in this letter so well is Define for us what a sinner is. So I'm going to read you a section of how he defines it. This is in Romans 3, in verse 10. He says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me ask you, have you ever deceived instead of telling the truth? Have you ever caused conflict instead of seeking peace? Have you ever preferred your own way instead of seeking for God? I've never met a person, myself included, that could answer no to any of those questions. That's what a sinner is. You see, part of Paul's burden throughout this letter is to help us all see the depth of our identity as sinners because for us, so many of us, it's so superficial. Oh, even if we've been in the church for a long time, it can be so superficial. You know, people can say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but what they really mean is, yeah, I'm not perfect, right? that statement never made anything better try it on your spouse and see how it goes honey i'm sorry i embarrassed you in front of all your friends tonight you know i'm not perfect yep and neither is the couch (laughs) on which you're sleeping tonight right it never has made anything better listen let me put before you that one of the reasons the gospel has not transformed our lives deeply Is that we've never come to terms with the depth of our sin. It's why we've entitled the series Newish. Because unfortunately for many of us, the gospel has never made us new, only newish. But newish is not enough. Jesus didn't bleed and die to make us newish, a shirt can do that. No, he bled and died so we could be made new, healed, whole. Everything's changed, have you? And so what we're gonna look at today is what are the benefits of God's salvation And the first thing we're gonna look at is that war has ended and access is granted. War has ended, access is granted. Romans 5 verse one, Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome around the years AD 56. 57 this is a church he's never visited made up of jews and gentiles many of them probably were slaves or uh were former slaves and he writes to them to clarify the gospel to unite them around the gospel, to strengthen their faith in the gospel, and to win their uh, their support in his missionary plans. Now, our verses for today give us a taste of the many themes that are going to come up, that he's going to bring up in these four chapters that we're looking at. And he begins with this momentous statement. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That statement is Paul's um, summary, one-sentence summary of the first four chapters he just co- covered He says, we have been justified by faith. What does that mean? We've been made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. We've been made right by what God has done through his servant, Jesus. Now, Jewish Christians would be digesting what it means to be made right with God through Jesus Christ and not through circumcision or through observance of the Jewish law gentile christians would be learning what it was what it meant to be made right with the true god not with the gods with the true god through jesus christ and not through the values of the roman empire now the whole section we're going to be looking at over the next 12 weeks deals with the effects of being justified by faith and the first effect that paul brings up is we have peace with god peace with God. Now, this peace has nothing to do, listen to me, this peace has nothing to do with how we feel, right? Because that that can be so often how we think about peace. That is not what the peace of God is about, right? For us, peace is like something like, you know, until I have the test results, I'm going to have no peace. That's not what this piece is about. This piece is objective, it's external to us, it's more akin to May 7th, 1945, when Germany in the West surrendered and American soldiers who had formerly been constantly in vigilance at their post began to set down their arms, walk away from their post, and make the long journey back home because World War II had ended. It's more like that. However the soldiers might feel, it doesn't matter, because now there was no more war. Amazing. Now, you see, in the first few chapters, Paul has painted a grim picture of war between God and humankind. He did this in the first three chapters. Prior to Christ's coming, God had a relationship with humanity, but it was a relationship of wrath. Let me read you some of um, a brief section of how Paul indicts the human race. This is in Romans 1 verse 28. He says, "And since they, they meaning the Gentiles." But really, it applies to all of us. since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. There are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, <clears throat> sorry, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a grim picture indeed. But then in chapter three, Paul brings in the mind blowing news that God has put forward his own son to receive the judgment that all such evil deeds in us deserve. So that now for those who, who come to christ by faith because of his coming they can now have peace with god what does that peace sound like what does that peace with god sound like it sounds like this as a christian you come to god and you say father i know i've deeply offended you and rebelled against you i know that i am foolish faithless Heartless, ruthless. And God says, I love you. I receive you as my child. I see you as full of love, life, peace, truth. Because that's who my son is. And you trust my son. What is true of him is true of you. That's true of you, even if you watched pornography last night. Even if you're obsessed with a man or a woman. If you're a Christian. Even if you get an adrenaline rush from all the money you have or are going to make or are dreaming of making. You see, our peace with God through Jesus Christ has nothing to do with what we're doing, how we feel. It's objective. It's external to us. Achieved on the cross. Delivered to us by faith. Faith. That's what peace with God in Christ is. And when you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, you can sleep at night. Then Paul goes on in verse two and he says, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access. I wonder if we grasp how amazing that is. You know, we're all used to that phrase access denied in this online age of many memberships and passwords. Are you able to keep up with your passwords? Man, it's like, I thought years ago when I first started entering into accounts, and it's like, I'm gonna always use the same password, just the same one, yeah, right. They keep changing the rules. It's like, oh man, I have so many, I can't keep track. But you know what, we're constantly online having to prove that we are who we say we are. We constantly have to enter our mother's maiden name or the name of our first girlfriend. I don't know, I don't wanna think about that. I'm a married man, I've been married 22 years. We're constantly having to prove that no, I am not a robot. You see, in cyberspace, we're not known personally. We're just digits. Do you have the right digits? Go ahead. You don't, Access is denied. You see, Paul has already established that we are, that everyone is a sinner. That is someone who is dishonest, self-seeking, conflict-creating, who does not seek after God. But now he says that through Jesus Christ, yes, we have peace with God, but we also have access into this grace in which we now stand. Grace is God's favor and power at work for us on our behalf. Imagine a convict, someone who's convicted of a crime, and they cannot even get a decent lawyer to plead their case, waking up one day, To find out that the president of the United States, with all the resources available to him, is at his disposal. Just picture this. This is what's true of every Christian. We have God, the creator of the universe, at our disposal. We have an audience with him. But it's not an audience for him to hear our rap sheet and sentencing. Uh Uh-uh. It's an audience for us to hear from him how loved we are. How special, how protected, how the creator of the universe. One says in his home, in his family, for all eternity. You see, when you do not have Christ in your life, you will only experience God's displeasure and wrath. But in Christ Jesus, war has ended and we have access to God always. Next benefit, what's another benefit of God's salvation of sinners? Oh, I love this. Suffering has misfired and hope is alive. Mm. Verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so now Paul continues talking about the benefits that we have in this salvation that Jesus brings. And he says here in verse three, that not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now those two words, rejoice and suffer, never go together unless you've been made new by Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus went, listen to this, when Jesus went to the cross, he experienced physical and spiritual pain of proportions that none of us can even envision. But out of that pain came resurrection, a new humanity, a new world. And because he has done this to pain, he has vested suffering for all Christians with the same kind of life remaking power. This is so important. He has taken the venom out of suffering. It's not that we don't feel it. It's not that it's not true. It's just that it has a transformative power for those who are in Christ. Suffering has always been used by the devil to keep people in his thrall. Hebrews 2 tells us that through death, Jesus destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were were subject to lifelong slavery. Listen, the, the, the worst thing for us in life is not death itself. It's the fear of death. Think of, I mean, death oftentimes comes quickly. You barely sometimes notice and then you're done. Think of how many years we can have the fear of death which includes the fear of suffering through which we are kept in lifelong slavery. But because of the cross, because on the cross, Jesus defeated death by death, suffering for Christians misfires. I want you to remember those four words, suffering for Christians misfires. What does that mean? It means that it's not your undoing. The devil will bring all kinds of suffering into your life to get you to quit, to get you to give up your faith. But it misfires for the people of faith in Christ. It's not your undoing. That's not what suffering will do to you because of Jesus. In fact, on the contrary, suffering produces a chain of virtue. Did you see it? Verses three and four. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's the chain. Suffering endurance, character, hope. I've heard from people who've gone to prison, Christians who've gone to prison, whether either they became Christians in prison or they were already Christians when they went. But I've heard from them that prison was the best thing that could ever happen to them. Now, you and I who think that prison would be the worst thing that could ever happen to us hear that and go, What in the world? But what they've explained to me is that in prison, in that place of suffering, Christ grabbed hold of their heart and put them, placed them in his school of discipleship. And under his caring hand, in that place of suffering, they endured rather than give up. And they developed the character that they never had before that got them in trouble before. And all of that led to hope, hope that they are new, that they're made new in Christ, that Christ is with them at all times and never leaves nor forsakes them, even while they're in prison. You see, listen, what's most true of you is not defined by your outward circumstances, but by your inner character and strength. Now I'm going to say something that's going to make some of you not respect me. I like tea more than coffee. Do I have any, any tea lovers? Let me see tea lovers. All right, Mark, nice. Okay, good. Okay, great. Yes. You know, now you're like, tea, like, are you British or something? No, I'm from Colombia. It's like the land of coffee, okay? But it's a long story. But, but I want you to think of yourself as a tea bag, okay? Think of yourself as a tea bag, because there's this. Um, Biblical scholar, and here's what he says. He says Christians are like tea bags. You have to put them in hot water to see how strong they are. Listen, Christian, don't be afraid of suffering. Suffering is not your undoing, not in Christ. Suffering misfires, it actually will make you stronger. Suffering through endurance and character will lead you to hope and hope does not put us to shame. That's what he says. Look at what he says here. Paul goes on in verse five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, I, this is one of my favorite verses in Paul. Paul is telling us here that the hope that we have in Christ during this life does not put us to shame, especially in the day of judgment. Because in this life, we've built our lives on the righteousness of Christ. And remember, for Christians, Christ's righteousness and God's wrath do not go together. Christ's righteousness has absorbed God's wrath in Christ. Now, how do we know that our hope is warranted? In other words, how do we know that that, that we're hoping, that, that, that we're not deceived, thinking that we belong to Jesus when we don't? And the answer is God's love. God's love for us. That's the answer. But it's not God's love um, known by us mentally because we read it in the Bible. It's not that. And it's not God's love displayed on the cross, though that is where we're going in the next couple of verses. But it's not that either in verse five. No, it's God's love, listen to me, as an inner experience because the Holy Spirit who lives in you keeps pouring God's love into your heart. Now, I've known a number of Christians for whom that's not the biggest reality. They're still stuck. They're stuck in what they don't have. They're stuck in what others have done to them. And the love of God experientially where they know it is just not, not yet, they're greatest reality about their lives. You know, when I hear the voice of my wife, I know that I'm hearing the voice of the person who is the most devoted to my well-being in the world. There is no one like her. There is no one who loves me like she does. This is not intellectual knowledge only. No, my heart, my whole being is convinced Of her love for me. That's how true Christians feel about God. Because when we place our faith in Christ, He sends His Holy Spirit to dwell within us, and His Holy Spirit keeps pouring God's love into our hearts so that we know ourselves. We're swelling up with our understanding that God loves us, and the result is that we love Him back. Is that how you feel? about God. Because I've known many people in the church who've been around the church for a long time, but they would never talk, they would never talk about God with that kind of affection. They might talk about him like, like he's this power, this thing, but not this person whom they know personally, whom they love dearly, because they know they're, they're just They're swimming in his love. And if that's not how you feel about God, maybe, maybe it's because you've never received the Spirit of God. And you've never received the Spirit of God because you've never truly given your life over to Christ. Do you see the chain? We place our faith in Christ, and he sends his Spirit to dwell within us. And that Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts Again and again. So, what's one of those benefits of God's salvation of us, for us? Suffering has misfired, and hope is alive. And then finally, what's another benefit of God's salvation of sinners? Jesus' death reconciled us, and his life will get us home. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This passage just gets better and better. It just keeps growing and growing. Who did Christ die for? The weak, the ungodly sinners. Paul here seems to be even in disbelief and he comes up, he conjures up this scenario of a person being willing to die for another. And he says, for a righteous person, one would scarcely die. What does that mean? He's saying that, hey, you're not easily going to go and give your life for someone else's life. Now we may say, in theory, we say, oh, I'll die for you. But man, when push comes to shove, when it's time to actually do that, would we go through with it? But then Paul concedes and says, well, for a good person, maybe someone would die. In other words, you're not going to go to a convict, someone who's a true, horrible criminal, and say, I'll take your place. All of that sets Paul up for verse 8, which you need to highlight, circle, write down, memorize. You need to know this verse, Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Come on, let's say that together. We have to, ready, go. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Yes, learned it. This verse was huge in the Reformation of the 16th century because the Catholic Church insisted, listen to this, that people were made right with God. They were justified before God through their good works. They still insist on this, but the Reformers countered, no, it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. God only saves bad people. It's the only kind of people that exist dishonest, self-seeking conflict creators who do not seek after God. See, so often people try to make themselves clean, clean up their act. I've heard it so many times. People saying like, no, church is not for me. I am so messed up. It's precisely for you. I'd be like saying, no, the gym is not for me. I am so weak physically. It's like, that's why you go to the gym. It's us as weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies of God that we come because it's in that state of sinfulness that God shows his love for us in sending his son to die for us. When Paul says that for a righteous person, one one might maybe die, he doesn't mean that there are some people who are righteous and good and others who are bad. He's already disallowed this in Romans 3. What he means is that from a human perspective, we see some people as good and some as bad. We do this all the time. From God's perspective, no one is good. Jesus said the same thing to the rich ruler, Mark 10. No one is good except God alone. That's coming from the mouth of Christ. You see, we judge by what we see. But by what we are able to judge externally, God has access to our innermost thoughts and desires. He knows how dark and depraved we are. And so if you think you're good, Christ has nothing to offer to you because he came to save sinners. But if you're able to see that you are weak, that you're ungodly, that you're a sinner, that you are God's enemy, then you're ready. You're ready to receive Christ's love because that's who he came to die for, sinners like you and me. Now, in these last verses, we come to an understanding of something about salvation that we often blur. You see, for the Jews, which is the context that Jesus came into, salvation referred to God's action on earth on behalf of his people to right all wrongs, to bring evildoers to justice, and to put an end to violence and death. Salvation is shalom, God's peace, transforming all aspects of life. Salvation is God on his throne with no rivals. So that's their understanding. And what the earliest Christians, who were all Jewish, had to reckon with is that Jesus brought precisely that salvation, but he brought it in two phases. Much of the New Testament is at pains to explain this to them and to us, that the salvation that God's people, the Jews, longed for was coming. And the Messiah was bringing it, but he brought it in two phases. And so his resurrection after the cross was the proof that he truly was the Son of God and that he had the authority to bring in the new age and send the Holy Spirit to dwell among his people as he gathered them from every corner of the world. But the consummation of that salvation would not come until his return and so in these verses you hear paul making a distinction between the now of our salvation and the future of our salvation so do not lose this here's what he says in verse 9 see if you can hear it here's what paul says since therefore we have Now, been justified by his blood, much more shall we, that's future, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you hear it? You see, what he's saying is, He's making this contrast between this age and the future age. And so what he's saying is in this age, the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, his death has justified us, has made us right before God. Imagine in the future how he, Jesus, who is no longer dead but reigning in power, how much more he's going to be able to save us from the wrath of God that's coming on the world because of its wickedness in this age we have been reconciled, we who are enemies, by the death of God's Son. Imagine how much more in the future, now that we belong to his family, that we're not enemies anymore, how much more we will be saved by his life, his kingly, indestructible life. Do you see the difference? You see, we we tend to only think of Christ as uh, dying on the cross, doing all those things that he did in that first coming for us. And that's all true and glorious. But Paul is trying to bring us into the future also by l- talking to us about his life, the life that he has now and will have forever and what it he- will be true of us because that's who he is now. And so what he's saying is like, hey, because in this age, Christ by his death has made you into a child of God, you who are an enemy, You can rest assured that in the age to come, because of his indestructible life, he will spare you. He will save you from the wrath of God. We need to long for that glory. That is the glory that we are waiting for. And so all of that leads Paul to finish this section with a statement about our boast. In verse 11, he says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, the word boast comes up three times in this passage. Uh, In the ESV, the Bible that we preach, teach from, uh, translates them every time as rejoice, um, which which is a good translation because if you think about it, what we boast in is what we rejoice in. If you want to know the deepest thing about yourself, think about what you boast in. Whether you say it, sometimes it comes out and it sounds really ugly, right? But we hear it all the time, even in our own minds. Like, just that thing that gives us this, hmm, this deep, deep satisfaction. Well, Paul is helping us see where our boast should be here. And so in uh, chapter 5, verses 2, 3, and 11, he brought it up. He says, we boast, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 2. We boast, we rejoice in our sufferings. Verse 3, we boast, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, has all your boasting in the things that this world values ceased? Your education, your career, your youthfulness, your strength, your beauty, your romantic relationship, your or your children's accomplishments, your affluence. You see, when we come to know that in God's eyes we are weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies, but that in Christ Jesus war has ended and access is granted to us to God. That suffering has misfired and hope is alive. That Jesus' death reconciled us to the Father and his life, his indestructible life will lead us and get us home. When we realize all of these things, then the big idea for today will be refreshing to us. God only saves bad people. And we say, yes, yes, yes. That's me. I'm one of those. Sign me up. I can't save myself. I need to be saved. I am weak. I am ungodly. I am a sinner. I am God's enemy. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming at just the right time while I was still a sinner. An enemy of God to die for me, to show me the love of God. But if you see yourself as good, self-sufficient, impressed by your own accomplishments, then that big idea will be offensive to you. God only saves bad people. Give me a break. I don't need this Jesus. I don't want this God. What's your choice? I invite you to throw yourselves upon the loving arms of Jesus. Let his righteousness cover you so that God's wrath set against this world in rebellion may never, ever touch you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for Romans. We thank you for this glorious letter. Each verse could be a sermon in itself. But Father, we, we content ourselves with what you're giving us today to, to distill out of this passage and massage it into our lives. Work it into our hearts, God, that we may be transformed by this glorious gospel. Father, I pray that everyone here, that each one of us would be able to see ourselves soberly, Clearly, in light of your holiness and greatness, that we would see our weakness, our rebellion, our godlessness. But Father, that we would also then turn to Christ for salvation and see his purity, his love, his truth, his peace, and run to him and say, save me, save me. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit who pours your love into our hearts as we prepare our hearts to take, to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper. I pray, Father, that your love would be so evident to us your love for us. Church, let's take a few moments to reflect and settle our hearts before we take the elements. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.